Hello, everyone. Welcome to your podcast, Sharing Sweat Equity, a business podcast hosted by your El Paso Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and the Minority Women's Enterprise Diversity Center. I am Idali Discareño, your host for the show. I'd like to take care of some housekeeping items. If you're looking for commercial real estate in El Paso, reach out to our friends at Epicenter at 915-532-3456. They have locations all over El Paso. Also, special shout out to our friends over at Sun Carpets for sponsoring our podcast room. And it is my pleasure to introduce one of our board members, Andrea Tani, that will go ahead and introduce our special guest today. Thank you so much, Andrea, for being here with us today. Thank you, Mary Helen. It's a pleasure and uh, an honor to be part of the session today and to introduce Dr. Lane. And I just wanted to share with our viewers today a little bit about your background. Um, Andrea currently holds a PhD and she's the Vice President at Texas Tech Paso Office of Institutional Advancement. Um, before joining the Texas Tech um, family, she served as the New Mexico um, State University's Vice President of University Advancement, Marketing and Communications, and President of the NMSU Foundation. So we're so happy that we were able to recruit you to Texas and El Paso, Andrea. <laughs> <laughs> Within five years, her team raised more than $100 million in cash and pledges and set a record high of fundraising marks for two years in a row, and that was back in 2017 and 18. So that is so awesome. So she's a very key in fundraising, program development. Um, of course, she's worked in higher education for 16 years, and of course, prior to NMSU, she served as the Director of Development of for the Schools of Nursing and Allied sciences at Texas Tech in Lubbock. So with that, um, with no further ado, just thank you so much, Andrea, for being here. You're so very well accomplished and you're such an asset to our board. So take it over, Andrea. I'll turn it over to you. All right. Well, thank you for that introduction. I mean, it's a pleasure um, again and just um, so honored to be part of the El Paso Hispanic Chamber. Um, so today I have the honor of introducing my boss, uh, President Lang, Dr. Lang, Rick Lang, many, many titles. And um, as I share some of his background, you'll see um, why it's so awesome that we have someone like Dr. Lang of his caliber and expertise um, to be able to share um, about vaccine education and answers uh, questions from our board membership uh, today. So uh, Dr. Lang, he um, is our first inaugural president of our Health Science Center, El Paso. He joined us in 2014, and um, he likes to joke that he's the best president we've ever had because he's the only, but I know if you've met Dr. Lang um, and have worked with him, you know that um, there's no joke about it. He is, he is the best, and he um, really has raised the level of our institution and all that we do for our community and raising um, the level of our mission. So it's, it's a joy to work alongside him and everything he's um, accomplishing for our community. Um, before joining um, El Texas Tech El Paso in 2014, he served as vice chairman of Medicine and Director of Educational Programs at um, UT Health Science Center in San Antonio. He earned his um, Bachelor's in Biochemistry from UNT and his medical degree from UT Southwestern Medical School in Dallas. His internship and residency training um, were at Johns Hopkins Hospital and uh, before he returned to UT Southwestern for his fellowship training in cardiology. So many of our community members actually know and receive um, wonderful um, care in the community um, from Dr. Lang as a cardiologist. 
Um, but more than that, he's also a great um, mentor, teacher, um, has taught our students, continues to mentor and teach our students, um, and has also grown our institution now with the addition of the dental school. We have the nursing school, graduate school, biomedical sciences, as well as the medical school. Um, and between our residents and students, almost a thousand learners on our campus, and it continues to grow in over 2,000 employees. Um, so without uh, further ado, I will um, introduce Dr. Lang and um, let him say a few words as we um, segue into vaccine um, education. And I'll start with some of the Q&A once Dr. Lang gets started. So welcome, Dr. Lang. Great. Well, Andrea, back at you. As Mary Helen said, recruiting you here from New, was New Mexico is probably the greatest feat I've had here during my <laughs> short tenure. That's great. And I'm really pleased to uh, be a part of... Uh, What's go, what you all are doing this afternoon. The Spanning Chamber does such wonderful work in our community uh, and uh, supported the university. So it's a, it's a real privilege to join you. Um, since the pandemic, uh, the university has played a pivotal role in working with our partners and collaborating to make sure that uh, from the very beginning, identifying uh, what we knew about the virus and acquiring PPE and putting in safe practices uh, continuing our educational mission, continuing clinical care and, uh, during this time. And then finally, uh, uh, enrolling the uh, uh, vaccine here in the community. So I want to be a resource for you today to uh, tell you everything that I know about that vac vaccine and to answer any questions you have. There are a lot of misperceptions out there, um, and I'd like to clear those up. Uh, I'd like to identify things that we don't know yet, but are examining. Uh, so this is a time, I know many of you have submitted questions already. Uh, the chat is another opportunity to do that. So Andre, I'm gonna hand it back to you and I'll let you uh, moderate and address the questions and I'll answer them. And if I don't answer them fully, uh, nail me and say, no, no, tell us, more. <laughs> tell us more. Okay, well, Dr. Ling, um, I, I just wanted to share um, with everyone listening and viewing today, um, the rollout of the vaccine, of course, we've heard um, a lot of the challenges. And I just want to, again, um, tout the leadership at the Health Science Center and amongst our community and our partner hospitals. You know, oftentimes you'll get a couple of days notice. And we did. In fact, if you can just walk us through when you were notified and how our team and community quickly jumped right. um, into action over the holidays, the Christmas holidays, um, to administer over 2,000 vaccines on our main campus and then another 1,000 vaccines, I believe, at our Trans Mountain Clinic and then our Ken Ruby Clinic. Right. So, Andrea, the, the vaccines really uh, obtained FDA approval in the second and third weeks of December. And after that approval, they had to distribute those vaccines nationally to every state, and then every state had to deliver them to all the localities and decide the, the best way to do that. Um, we knew on December 17th that the vaccine had been approved, the one that we were expecting to get, and we hoped to get it December 19th. It didn't come, it didn't come, it didn't come. And then we received word on December 23rd that it would be arriving. So no advance warning at all. And interestingly enough, I received a letter from the governor, all of us did saying, what's taking you so long to administer it? Well, that's on Christmas Eve day. <laughs> but that Monday, immediately after Christmas, we began administering uh, the doses. And within uh, eight days after that, I had distributed about 3,000 doses. Um, and by the way, for those of you that are listening and are frustrated about how do you get the vaccine and why isn't there more coordination, unfortunately, that all of the centers that are receiving it 
have a very similar experience. Uh, you all are aware that UTEP plan to immunize their campus today, but the vaccine just didn't arrive yet. So uh, we received very little notice. They wanted out very quickly. And I must say, when you look at all the metropolitan areas around Texas, El Paso's done better than every other large city in Texas. So mm -hmm. per capita, we've actually received more vaccines than many of the larger cities. Because the key to getting more is you have to get, get it out as quickly as possible. You know, from the people that are getting it, it's frustrating because you don't know where to register. Sometimes it's three or four sites. You have to wait in line uh, oftentimes. And we can talk a little bit more about that. But, but I, I, I want to let you know that um, here at the university, uh, I wish we had more vaccine now, but the first 3,000 doses we delivered, we were, uh, the team was ready uh, and we had no waits the, um, to get the vaccine. Uh, people walked right in, literally got placed in the vaccination center, got the vaccine. We wait 15 minutes to observe them and they were out the door. So from the time they walked in to the time they walked out, it was no more than 20 minutes for the 3,000 doses. Again, that's a lot of teamwork, a lot of volunteers. And Andre, you know, I was giving vaccines as well during that time. In fact, we'll start again Monday with our second dose and I'll be uh, cleared out my days to give a vaccine as well to make sure that we can meet the needs of the community. Thank you, Dr. Lang. I think that's a good description. Um, and I know because it has been so frustrating across the country and even in our own community um, with, with uh, all the challenge to roll it out. And so hopefully that puts a, um, a little bit of perspective and just some of the logistical challenges as the recipient of a vaccine site. Um, and, and as I heard yesterday, um, you know, there's mega, there's major cities across Texas that are not doing mega sites. And so they're vaccination process um, that rolling it out to the greater community um, has been a little bit slower than even El Paso, despite the challenges we're seeing. Is that correct, Dr. Lang? And what have you heard about that? No, you're absolutely right. So uh, right now, the state's asking for places that can be mega sites, that is delivering somewhere between 1,000 to 2,000 vaccines a day. Early on, we, UMC, uh, and the Department of Public Health was delivering between 500 and 1,000 on a daily basis. So that's enabled us to get additional vaccines, but the, the logistics of that, again, are very difficult. But again, we've done a much better job than most other major metropolitan areas. Wonderful, that's wonderful to hear. I'll jump into the, some of the questions that um, I know um, Mary had already received prior to um, the webinar today. Um, and the first one, we'll just kind of go, there's kind of a progression of the questions. So I, I try to categorize them and you may answer some of these questions as we're, as we're going along um, on, on some of these that have already been submitted. So I'll jump in. Um, what are the current COVID-19 vaccine recommendations for children and adults based on the clinical trials that have taken place so far? Right. Uh, the clinical trials that have been done so far have been in individuals above the age of 16. And so our current recommendations related to vaccine administration really just covers that group. Now you say, well, that's really kind of unfortunate because we're we have a lot of kids going to school. Well, there are currently studies now where uh, they're enrolling sites. We're asking actually to be one of those sites as well. So we can vaccinate the younger children, adolescents and younger children to make sure that they have the same immune response. But right now, the recommendations only apply to giving uh, vaccines. And I believe they've extended down to age 14, 14 on up. Okay. Okay, and so um, someone wrote in, should I take um, a test to see if, I am if I'm currently infected with COVID-19 before getting the vaccine? What are your recommendations if they're having symptoms or they think they should get tested before going to get the vaccine? 
That's, that's an excellent question. Um, the current recommendations are not to be vaccinated if you're actively infected. So if someone has symptoms suggestive of COVID or even a viral illness, because you want the vaccine to be effective and it's gonna be effective if you're giving to somebody that's not sick because somebody that's sick is already making antibodies. And so you may not have an adequate response. So if a person's symptomatic or if they've recently had the COVID infection, we're recommending that they not get the vaccine. Excuse me, my light just went out. I've got to wave my arm a second. <laughs> Motion activated. Um, uh, so, uh, but do you, do you need to have routine testing if you're not symptomatic? The answer is no. In fact, that will just delay vaccine because many of the individuals on this uh, seminar or webinar with us, they'll get a call and say, listen, we have vaccine this afternoon, come down and get it. And if you actually waited to get tested, first of all, it's not fruitful. Second of all, um, it would delay that. Andre, can I take a, a step back for just a second? Because Cindy <laughs> had asked a question. First of all, why get the vaccine? I mean, let's just take a step back and we'll talk about some of the specifics. Um, because uh, people are saying, well, I, I'm concerned about the vaccine. It was developed so quickly. What we know about the COVID infection uh, is, is clear. It is uh, an infectious virus, much more infectious, for example, than flu. It caused hundreds of thousands of deaths, over 400,000 deaths uh, here in the United States as well. And then people that recover oftentimes have long lasting symptoms. And by the way, it's possible to get the COVID infection more than one time. We know that the vaccines, the two that we have now are 95% effective in, in preventing symptomatic COVID infection. And for the rare individuals that did get COVID infection after the vaccine, it made it a mi much milder disease. So I, I don't want anybody on the phone call to be listening and saying, gosh, I wonder whether I should get it or not. The risk of getting COVID infection and having a severe uh, event, especially if you have underlying conditions, is very high, much higher than one would ever have uh, an issue with the vaccine. So definitely individuals should get it. And Dr. Lang, I know you actually um, sit on uh, one of the FDA panels, and um, I know there's, uh, there's a few different ones, but I, I'd love for you to just share your FDA panel because I know that you're constantly reading as many of our faculty, and that's the beauty of having a health science center and a faculty who both practice and are doing the research. And so I heard you say something yesterday that was interesting to me about the effectiveness of the COVID vaccine, because you said, again, 94, 95% effective. Um, our flu vaccines are, are not even that high. Can you talk to us a little bit again, what you hear at the FDA and other vaccine effectiveness compared to this one? Right, there are two things about the uh, COVID vaccines that are just remarkable. One is how quickly we develop them. Now, that doesn't mean that they're any less safe. They've been tested in over 70, these two, these two vaccines, we have over 70,000 individuals, half of whom received placebo, half have got the vaccine. So it underwent a very stringent safety and efficacy, effectiveness studies that the FDA demands. And the interesting thing about it is because we're so good at technology now that we can make these vaccines quicker and we tested them in tens of thousands of individuals very early. This is 95% effective after the second dose, two weeks after the second dose. Let's, let's take a step back and say, if you have a flu vaccine and if it's 70% effective, you think you've hit a home run. 
Uh -huh. Nobody ever expected a vaccine to be quite this effective. So not only the speed with which we got it to market, but also how effective it is really remarkable. Thank you. That, that's, that's wonderful to hear. Um, and that also kind of leads into the next question. So is it going to be like the flu vaccine um, where you, you, you're anticipating we may need to get um, it annually? And how many uh, doses in this initial vaccine um, are, are taken? Okay. The two vaccines that are approved in the United States are both called messenger RNA vaccines or mRNA vaccines, and they require two doses. One of the vaccines, the Pfizer, requires a dose three weeks after the first dose. The Moderna vaccine, also an mRNA, requires it four weeks after. So everybody will get two doses with these particular vaccines. And people, by the way, always ask, well, when is it effective? Well, we know that in the first two weeks, there's really no significant amount of antibodies made. And those antibodies are what fight the uh, viral infection. But we know two weeks after the first dose, it begins to become effective, but it's not fully effective till two weeks after the second dose. So that's when it's 95% effective. Okay, thank you. And speaking of that, I know, again, across the country, we and we hear quite a bit about side effects, and that's natural of sort of any vaccine we receive. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about the side effects of these particular vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna, and then maybe just how that compares, again, back to, you know, the flu vaccine, because again, that gives some people some some something to compare to as people are considering this vaccine. That's great. First of all, I'll, I'll talk about the most severe reaction. That is, individuals that might get a vaccine and then develop shock or what's called an anaphylactic reaction. The same type of reaction someone gets after a bee sting, for example, where their uh, face begins to swell and they have difficulty breathing. That occurs extremely rarely. And that is, if I vaccinate a million people with these vaccines, only 11 individuals will have that kind of reaction. So it's incredibly rare. And by the way, the same thing happens after the flu vaccine but with about one out of every million individuals. And by the way, it has the same thing after a bee sting and eating peanuts for young kids and those kinds of things. So it's extremely rare. And by the way, that always happens very quickly. So within the first 30 minutes. So that's why we, after the, we administer the vaccine, we watch everybody for 15 minutes. But if anybody has a history of a severe allergic reaction, we ask them to wait for 30 minutes and we just observe them. And every site that administers the vaccine has the medicines to reverse that effect. So I'm not aware of any deaths that have occurred as a result of administration of the vaccine in the United States. Okay. Now, what's, what's, what's more common, though, is what I would call these minor reactions. Is that um, because the shot is meant to elicit an immune response, people have symptoms related to that. And about three-fourths of individuals will have either fatigue or headache. They may have some mild muscle aches or joint aches or fevers or chills, very rarely nausea or vomiting. Uh, those are usually very mild symptoms. They always occur in the first 24 to 48 hours. They're usually easily treatable with something like uh, Tylenol or aspirin. And they occur after the first dose and after the second dose. But again, they're mild. Oh, the other thing I failed to mention is Everybody gets some tenderness in the shoulder, just like we do with all vaccines. And so that's to be expected. Right. Okay. And 
along those lines, again, dispelling some myths and transparency about side effects. Um, tell us a little bit, are, are vaccine providers required to report these um, side effects? And, and talk to us a little bit about the transparency of that since it's been rolled out to the, to the greater public now. That's a great, great question. So the, the data we have, all the information I cited was based upon studies that were done in 70,000 individuals. But now we're gonna be giving the vaccine to millions across the United States. So everybody that is administered the vaccine should be given a sheet of paper that allows them to register with the CDC. And that allows them to report any symptoms they have over the next five days after they get the vaccine. Because if somebody goes home and has a, any type of allergic reaction or side effect, I wouldn't know about it because they're at home. But uh, this allows us to collect information on millions of individuals that have received the vaccine. Now, if I, as a, as a physician, see a side effect, if it happens that someone has one of the anaphylactic reactions, yes, we do report that. But the, the major uh, uh, individuals that are responsible for reporting are those who get the vaccine. Right, that's good to, that's good to hear. Okay, and then um, going into um, a question that I think Cindy asked us before the webinar got started, um, but we actually hear quite a bit and I see it on social media and um, I've, I've heard, you know, some friends kind of halfway joking about it, but I think it's a, a question that people are seriously asking. And that, that is, does uh, the vaccine change my DNA? And I think there's a lot of, again, that scientific um, explanation to that, that I've heard you share that puts things in perspective, again, back to that transparency of the vaccine, if you can share that with us. Well, uh, the short answer is no, it doesn't. But if it did, I would try to get George Clooney's vaccine. Okay. <laughs> I'd love to look like George Clooney. Um, no, the, the, the nice thing about this, what's called messenger RNA, is it doesn't in any way attach or interfere with our own DNA. I mean, what it does is it acts as a messenger for your body to make proteins that look just like the outside of the virus. They're not infectious. It's not the complete virus. It's just some of the proteins. And your body sees that to make antibodies. Now, what that means is when you actually do see the virus, you'll already have antibodies to it. And so that should stop the antibody from replicating in your body. And that's the whole virtue. So no, unfortunately, it can't change your DNA. In fact, it's completely impossible. In fact, when I give the injection, I tell people they're gonna feel fevers or chills. And it's not that they've gotten the COVID infection because it's impossible to get infected with the COVID virus from that vaccine, just as, as it's impossible for that to get into your DNA. Okay. Um, and one of the questions we talked, you talked a little bit about it, um, about um, the immunity um, to COVID after you've been, uh, after you've received the vaccine, but kind of back to the question of how long, or what are you hearing in terms of how long do you think that um, immunity will last over time? And will this be something that you anticipate will have to do on an annual basis? Or what, what, are, what are studies showing on that so far? Yep. Well, one of the really nice things about the vaccine studies is that it shows that you make more antibodies getting the vaccine, excuse me, than you do from the native infection. You take a step back and say, wow. I mean, that would imply that the vaccine may be more protective against a second infection than getting infected with the COVID virus itself. Wow. Now, um, again, because these studies were done fairly recently, 
uh, I know that once someone has received the vaccine, that we can detect a high level of antibodies at least five months later. Now we're gonna to continue to follow these individuals for nine months and 12 months, uh, but right now the antibodies stay up. But they, you know that's just one piece of the puzzle because that means you have active antibody, but when you give the vaccine, you've also uh, you've targeted cells that know what the virus looks like. And when they see it, they can make additional antibodies. So you've programmed your body already with that vaccine to make additional antibodies in the future. And also to have specific cells called T cells that can kill the virus. So we know that antibodies last a long time, but even after those go away, we still have the ability to mount an immune response to the virus. Now, Andrea, the $50 million question which you said is, how often will we have to get this? And I have to say, we don't know at this particular point. We know that, for example, with the flu, it, it changes regularly. We have to get a flu shot annually. The coronavirus has changed, but it doesn't change nearly as fast or as rapidly as the flu virus does. And the best estimate from the National Institutes of Health and the CDC is we may have to get it every two or three years, but the, the jury's still out on that right now. Okay, that's good to hear. Very, okay. And um, I think I think one of the other um, questions that a lot of people have as well is um, in regard to just kind of the differences between the Moderna and Pfizer, because I think there's a lot of side-by-side -side comparisons, but it's always really nice to hear from um, a physician um, and someone who's one had the vaccine, who's administered the vaccine, um, and can speak a little bit to, to the comparison of the two. Well, great. Uh, you know, we don't have any head-to-head -head comparisons to date of these two. I've gone very thoroughly through the FDA briefings. As you mentioned, I have the privilege of chairing one of the FDA panels, the one that approves uh, circulatory and heart devices. And so I know how thoroughly uh, they investigate and brief the panels and the public on these kinds of things. So I've looked at that data. And it, when you look at the effectiveness of those vaccines, both of them appear to be 95% effective. Then when you look at the number of severe reactions that occur, they look to be very similar as well. And then when you look at the minor reactions, you know what, interesting enough, they appear to be very similar as well. And the only difference to us as users is um, they both require two doses. It's just for the Pfizer, they're three weeks apart and the Moderna, they're four weeks apart. That's really the major difference. Now, from my standpoint as a healthcare provider, the major difference is how you handle and store these vaccines because the Pfizer vaccine, they're the same mRNA technology that is a messenger RNA technology in terms of the vaccine, but the Pfizer vaccine has to be stored in super cold conditions. We're talking about minus 80 degrees. Now, I grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska, and it gets about minus 40. It doesn't get to minus 80 in Fairbanks, Alaska. It's really cold. And then when you take it out of the freezer, it doesn't last very long. So the Pfizer vaccine can really only be distributed in centers that have access to those really cold storage facilities. The city has some, uh, the UMC has some, we have a lot because of the research we do, UTEP does, but the general practitioner wouldn't be able to store those. Now the Moderna vaccine can be stored in a regular freezer or refrigerator, and that means it's gonna be more widely available. So that's really the major difference. Um, if you have the opportunity to get one of those vaccines, it really doesn't matter which one you get. Take the first one that uh, is made available to you. Okay, 
Thank you. That's that that's good. That's good to know that if you have the opportunity, it's important to get the one that that you've been offered that you have available. So that's that's a that's good to know for the community. Um, and then we have some specific questions um, from viewers that are related to different health conditions. So a couple of the questions that have come in are related to um, if you have pre-existing conditions such as um, MS, someone wrote us in about MS and about Crohn's disease. Um, so can you talk a little bit about any, any research out there with some of these pre-existing conditions um, in getting the vaccine? Right. I'm gonna advise, I assume that the individual that asked that question either knows of somebody with multiple sclerosis, MS, or may have some personal experience with it. And, and for this particular uh, condition, I'm gonna ask you to consult uh, your physician or neurologist, because that condition, which is an immune condition, kind of waxes and wanes, and there are various ebbs and flows. Uh, so I would want to make sure that uh, they've consulted with their personal physician to see whether they would recommend it or not. In general, for most people who have chronic conditions, it puts them at an increased risk of having severe infection and even death with the COVID virus. So we're recommending that they do get vaccinated. The person with Crohn's disease and either, e even people with other immunocompromised uh, conditions are recommended to get the vaccine. Now, again, because there's no active virus in the vaccine, it doesn't put those individuals at increased risk. Um, they may or may not form as robust an antibody response, but the recommendations are that they still get it, especially if they're immunocompromised because it puts them at risk of developing a severe COVID infection. And, and also related to that, what, a, what about chronic disease? We see that, you know, is prevalent along our, along our border in our, in our community. So diabetes, obesity, um, heart disease. Um, what, what are your recommendations on that? Yeah, th that's a really important question because about 50% of the population has one or more of those conditions. And I'm going to repeat the ones you mentioned because they're all associated with uh severe infections. In other words, they don't make you more likely to get an infection, but if you do get it and you have one of those conditions, it's more likely to be severe. It's more likely to result in hospitalizations. And most of the deaths that we see occur in people with one or more of these conditions. You mentioned diabetes, chronic kidney disease, people that have underlying lung disease like emphysema, people that have heart disease like heart failure or coronary artery disease people that have uh, sickle cell anemia, and those that have cancer. Those are the high-risk individuals. And in fact, with the limited amount of vaccine now, we're trying to target those high-risk individuals, people over the age of 65 and people under the age of 65 with one or more of those conditions. Great, thank you. That's great clarity to hear. Um, and so another, um, not really a condition, but I think a lot of um, pregnant moms and people um, who are experiencing maybe trying to try trying to get pregnant or are pregnant um, and kind of having to weigh these decisions. I know it weighs heavy on on a mother's mind um, this at this time. So can you share any effects of COVID vaccine on pregnancy, um, the developing fetus or even in the infants? Right. So those people were originally excluded from the studies, but because there were two doses under it, there were people that got the first dose and then subsequently found out they were pregnant and then either got the second dose or got it afterwards. There's it's just a couple small handfuls. There's about 22 individuals in the two studies in which that happened. 
and none of them had any uh, adverse reactions. It didn't affect the pregnancy at all. Obviously, the, we're waiting for the mothers to deliver, but the pregnancies are advancing uh, fine going forward. Um, we are concerned because the pregnancy seems to be a risk factor for having severe COVID infection. Uh, so uh, what, even though there's not a, a great amount of data, we're not excluding women who are pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant from getting the vaccine. Again, we, it has no inactive or active virus in it at all. It just has a small piece of mRNA and is thought to be safe for the mother. But uh, we have to advise uh, women who are pregnant and are thinking about doing so is that uh, it, our best estimate is that it's safe, but we don't have a large enough database to actually confirm that. Thank you. And would you, so let's say, you know, we keep hearing this term used throughout the, um, throughout the pandemic of herd immunization. And I, I hear as, again, as late as yesterday, uh, we had some, some visitors talking about this in what's it going to take before our community, El Paso in the region, um, before we sort of reach this, this herd immunity, or we can um, feel like the majority of our population, yeah. enough of our population have been vaccinated. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that term and what that means specific to El Paso? Sure. Um, I, I had herd immunity, H-E-R-D. You often think about cattle and moving together. But what it means is, uh, Andrea, it would be great if I could vaccinate yes. you, but it'd be even better if I could vaccinate you and everybody around you. That would be more protective. And then by the way, everybody around them as well, and then around them. So the farther that I can extend that, the safer it makes it for you as an individual. And that's what herd immunity is. We wanna vaccinate you and pretty much everybody that you might come in contact with either intentionally or unintentionally. Um, when we look at other um, viral illnesses, in general, we target some, immunizing somewhere between 60 and 80% of the individuals. And then at that point, we feel like we've protected most individuals, that individual and people around them, which makes us safe. So that's the, that's the target. Now that immunity can come from people being exposed and having natural infection. Some of it comes from vaccine. Um, but you bring up an important point is that uh, in our armamentarium, we not only have the vaccine to protect us, but all these other measures that we're doing. So for example, let me ask you a question, Andrea, and this, this may be TMI, there may be uh, <laughs> personal health information, but uh, do you know anybody in the last four months has had the flu? No. No. Well, interestingly enough, the measures that we've taken to prevent the COVID infection have reduced the flu infection rate by 98.5%. Wow. So, uh, in addition to the vaccine, to minimize the risk of transmission here in El Paso and across the U.S., we're going to need to continue the things that we're doing. We're going to need to continue wearing masks and socially distancing and washing our hands and not having large group gatherings until we can get the infection rate down near zero. So uh, I want a lot of people that are listening to realize is that this um, this vaccine is not a get out of jail car card. You know, go 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 past, go collect $200. Um, you still have to do the things that we need to do to get the infection rate down to where it needs to be. Excellent. That was actually a question that was sent in about 
um, post-vaccine precautions and and how just again out of curiosity how how long do you see our community having to um, adhere to at least mask wearing yep i i would be surprised if we're not doing it through the summer uh, there are a couple things. Uh, one is that even though the vaccine's pretty effective, 95%, it's not 100% effective, number one. Number two is we're not going to get everybody vaccinated across the city until the summer. I mean, if, if we did 50,000 a week, and that would be a noble goal, we're only getting 10 or 15,000 a week right now. But if we could do 50,000 a week, it would still take us four or five months to get everybody vaccinated. And then the, the last thing is we're absolutely certain that the vaccine prevents symptomatic infection. There's no question about that. What we don't know yet is, is it possible that you could get the virus, it really not infect you because of it, but you could transmit it to somebody else over a short period of time. So we have studies trying to determine that uh, right now, but we don't know the answer to that. So for all those reasons, I think we're gonna be wearing a mask for a little bit longer, except for when we have Zoom meetings like this. Absolutely. That's no. That's good to hear. Just in terms of people understanding the expectations of um, trying to mitigate the risk and staying healthy um, the rest of 2021 um, as well. So that's helpful to know. Um, which actually kind of segues into um, really what is focused. We have several questions focused on pediatrics, um, and now we have you know several El Paso schools and students who returned um, this week. And so um, Pete, we have some pediatricians who are curious or if you've heard anything about when different um, pediatricians or practice settings will actually have access to the, va the vaccine. We see again that, you know, we have these mega sites in UMC um, and the local hospital and the, the city health department. So when do you anticipate maybe some of the providers and even maybe the pharmacies, we've, we've heard about that as well. Okay, so uh, in terms of uh, who we're vaccinating, we wanna make sure we get all of the patient-facing healthcare providers vaccinated. Um, and, and Andre, as you know, when we got our 3,000 doses, we, did, we targeted our um, campus, but we targeted the community as well. Individuals, healthcare providers, nurses, medical assistants, uh, even some front office staff that were facing patients, dentists in the area as well that didn't receive vaccine. So if there's a healthcare provider on this call that hasn't received vaccination, please let us know. And I'll put, put you in touch with the Department of Public Health or with UMC, because uh, so, those individuals need to go to the top of the list. Now, with regard to whether pediatricians will get it to administer to children, I think that's gonna be a ways off because again, it's not recommended yet for children. We haven't done the studies to show that it's safe and effective yet. So I think that's gonna be several months down the road. Okay. And then have you heard anything, I, right now, of course we don't know, it's hard to even, as you mentioned at the beginning for us to know when you know each organization uh, receives or is being notified um, about their vaccines. And so someone asked the question, how do I sign up to be a COVID-9 vaccine provider? But can, so let's take a step back and maybe talk a little bit about what the state level process is and how the state's receiving the vaccines, the allocations, and then how the state then is allocating out to the various um, cities across okay. the state. So uh, as you alluded to, there's a national distribution that goes to the state. And then the state has to decide uh, among all the requests it gets, uh, who gets it. Um, some of that's determined uh, by the population. Some of it's determined by how many healthcare providers there are. 
sometimes it's divided upon or decided upon whether you have the facilities. For example, if you can't store the Pfizer vaccine, then you can't get it. So uh, based upon all of that information, the state is allocating uh, the vaccine. Uh, we really uh, don't have much input into that. We can make our request. And again, we're, we're reminding the state is we're getting it, we're distributing it real quickly, give us some more. Uh, but they have Dallas and Houston and San Antonio and Austin and Fort Worth and Denton and every other place requesting the same thing. Uh, so, you know, that, that unfortunately, that's the, the rub of, uh, uh, that makes it very difficult for us to notify individuals and to staff to adequately uh, distribute it. All right, well, I have a few questions that have come in since we um, kind of walked through our, our questions that were sent in ahead of time. Um, one, one viewer asked um, why perhaps a, an individual who's received the vaccine um, may have worse side effects than um, what we're hearing is kind of the, the norm across um, most people getting it. Is there a reason at all that someone may get it, those side effects any worse than others? That is a very interesting question. I'll, I'll provide uh, some uh, observational uh, information or data. Uh, in rolling out our 3,000 vaccines and in helping UMC as well, we've had a handful of people in which the symptoms I mentioned, the fatigue, the headache, the muscle or uh, joint aches, uh, fevers or chills, weren't mild, they were a little bit more moderate. And when you dig underneath the hood a little bit, you realize that some of these individuals had had recent COVID infection. I said recent within the last month. Oh, okay. So uh, I suspect what's happening in those individuals under it is they've had an infection, uh, their immune system's already revved up. And then when you give them the vaccine, for them, it feels like the virus is coming again and they have a more robust immune response. And those symptoms I measured, I mentioned, they're just a part of the immune response. And so uh, don't be concerned about it. You want an immune response. You just don't want the headache and fevers or chills that go with it. So uh, uh, again, that's observational data. Um, if people have had a COVID infection, should they get the vaccine? Well, they're probably protected with their innate immunity for five months. After that, they should certainly get the vaccine. But I'm usually recommending that they wait for at least a month or two after their active infection is over before they get it again, primarily so they don't have uh, the moderate symptoms that I mentioned. Uh, let me go back, uh, Andre, you asked a question I didn't answer and that is how do you become a provider? Um, the uh, Texas DSHS, Department of State Health Services, uh, has a website that a person can register on. Now as a person, it's usually an entity, but there, there are very strict requirements about what needs to be done. And that is you have to assure that you have the proper facilities for storing the vaccine and recording the temperature. Uh, that information has to be available to turn over to the CDC. You have to register all the individuals and provide that information within 24 hours after you've registered them to a central vaccine site. And you have to adhere to all the CDC guidelines and recommendations. So there's a checklist. It's not really as easy as it sounds. Okay. Um, and I would recommend people don't try this in their garage, okay? So, uh, <laughs> But, but there, it, it'll walk you through that process if someone feels like they want to do that. Good. That's okay. That's a great resource. I'm sure Mary Helen could also send that out um, to the group or anybody interested as well. 
Well, Dr. Ling, this has been very, very informative and um, really eye-opening, even um, for myself. And, you know, we all read about this so often and you get bombarded, overloaded with information. Is there... Is there one place that you recommend where you sort of get your really good um, data from or just, you know, good good places that people can go to as a resource to get information, not just on where to get a vaccine, but um, as studies come available and just um, a little bit more in-depth knowledge and, and putting these myths, um, dispelling these myths about the vaccine? Uh, every week I go to the NYT the New York Times called coronavirus, coronavirus vaccine tracker. And that gives you the latest information about how many vaccines are being studied, kind of where they're at, what they do, by the way. Uh, and it's a really easy to read site and it's updated on a daily basis. So NYT, just type in New York Times, coronavirus vaccine tracker, and it'll provide that information. The other great site is obviously the CDC. Uh, they give really uh, pertinent information at whatever level you're at, whether you're a consumer or a healthcare provider. If you're looking for different types of vaccine information, the CDC is a great site for that as well. And then uh, I'd also encourage Andrea, I know you don't want me to open this up, but uh, we want to be a resource uh, to the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and to the community, especially for, for providing accurate information. So if, if they want to email or text you or email or text me or, um, or do this again, I'm happy to do it. Wonderful. No, that's a great resource. And I, I echo, I think um, any, any organization or if there's a, you know, an employer or just anybody has general questions, but if there's, you know, you have a, a, a group that's uh, wanting to hear um, from the experts and those on the front lines, I think that that um, is a great opportunity. And that's why we have our health science center here um, to serve our community. So again, you're, you, you always make that offer. And I know that it's very genuine and, and I know our community appreciates that. So please, Mary Helen, if, if anybody is interested on in taking uh, Dr. Lang up on that, he genuinely means it. And we're happy to do this um, again as well, or just pass um, his email to, to anyone who's interested. Um, and actually, I, I'll put a plug in. We're actually, um, if you miss this, um, if this goes out to, you know, to any friends, relatives, anybody that may have missed it or has more questions and would like to participate in another um, digital conversation. We started um, a tech table talk with Dr. Lang as our moderator. And we had our first um, session um, actually right before the holidays in December. And we actually had three of our students, a medical student, um, nursing student, um, and they all have served on the front lines and talked really about their experiences. And this was right before the vaccine um, was rolled out and, and really talked about um, all the challenges and just um, coping and how they've gotten through it and how they've served our community. And it was just so enlightening to hear their perspective as future healthcare heroes. Our next one is actually going to be next week, again, moderated by Dr. Lang and open to the public to hear firsthand um, from those um, on our front lines um, who have received her some of the first to have received the vaccine in our community, um, such as Dr. Black, our Dean of our dental school, um, and uh, Dr. Reddy. She is chair of our OB-GYN department. And then um, we also um, have our chair of pediatrics department as well. We thought that that would be a good combination 
um, for all the questions related to pediatrics, um, pregnant mothers, um, our dental school, who's working directly, as Dr. Lang said, with our dentists locally, um, as well as um, our associate dean of the nursing school, Dr. Manny Santa Cruz as well. Um, so he'll be talking from a nursing's perspective, but such a great group of panelists um, who have so much expertise to offer. So please tune in and I'll pass that information um, to Mary Helen as well, if y'all are interested in that one and sending anybody who wasn't able to participate on this one. But um, thank you, Dr. Lang. Thank you, Cindy and team, Mary Helen and um, the entire team at the Hispanic Chamber. Um, you all do such a wonderful job and we're just so grateful to be part of this. Thank you, Dr. Lang. Again, a uh, shout out to the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. You guys do wonderful yes. things for the community. We're trying to keep our businesses open and vibrant during this time. We'll do what we can to help make them safe so you can get there. So thank you for all you do. Thank you so much, Dr. Lang. Thank you for the support that you give to our community. And of course, Andrea, um, thank you for sharing all of your expertise. It was very informative. I know it was very essential to our businesses. So thank you again. Um, we're looking forward to maybe doing another one, maybe in the future. And of course, um, anyone that reaches out to us will be happy to share the contact information and more information about that table talk. So that's really interesting. Thank you for creating those forums. It's really important. Bye-bye.